Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambuddhasa Dhamma friends this evening I'm going to talk about the third noble truth. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. You'll be happy to hear that after staying here for a while. <laughs> so this is the end of Dukkha. The Pali word is called Dukkha Niroda. Dukkha you already know, but the word Niroda is very, very important for you to know. Roda, uh, let me spell for you, N-I-R-O-D-H-A, so Niroda. <coughs> Ni there is a negation, means not, no. But Roda there means a prison, uh, literally means a, a prison, so no prison. So you can imagine if you have ever visited the prison, you see all the gates and people confined there. So you can have a picture how we are all confined uh, with this kind of uh, suffering. Sometimes we experience moments of happiness, of course, but sooner or later, uh, suffering comes. So really, this is everyday experience. Everybody knows this. So this is a prison actual of samsara. Birth and death and sickness. You have heard all this already now. So this talk is timely because some of you, you, you are ending your part one and this is my last talk for part one. Uh, I'll stay for the three months, and but part one you're leaving. Maybe it's better you know. Uh, maybe you have ended your suffering. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so let us really refer to the discourses. Well, in Majima Nikaya, it's Satchavibanga Sutta. It's an ex exposition of the truth. So the Buddha, this is what he uh, defined. That's how he defined this uh, third noble truth. And what, friends, is that? noble truth of cessation of suffering. Then he answered, it is the remainderless fading away and seizing, the giving up, the relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of that same craving. This is called the noble truth of cessation of suffering. So really, it's all about letting go, actually. It's about letting go, giving up. Even in a state of deep meditation concentration, is about giving up difficult mind states. And we are going to see also in attending Nibbana, it's about giving up, letting go of what we call fetters. Those are mental defilements. So, attachment to things leads to suffering. Is that new? <laughs> Maybe it's not new. And really, it's not only attachment, but also ignorance. When they, you combine those two, really, uh, the, this leads to uh, suffering. I have done a small experiment <laughs> about this. What I did is to breathe in and hold my breath. And then I start slowly releasing the breath, slowly by slowly. And then I found out at the moment when I was holding, the, holding on to the breath, there was a lot of tension and suffering. But I, as I released slowly by slowly, I could see different degrees of tension uh, going down and down. We can do that together. Okay, take a deep breath together. Hold it. And now start releasing slowly by slowly. Slowly, slowly, slowly release. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Completely let go. 
So you feel a release of tension. So for me, that experiment is very important. It looks very simple, but it's very important. It really shows uh, how the relationship between my holding on and letting go. So I put it in a, a mathematical way that if I really hold on to 10%, my happiness release is also 10%. The same with the breath. If you hold on fully, <laughs> you feel tension. And when you release, you'll see how you really feel practically. Don't read suttas at the moment. Just see it in your direct experience. <laughs> you see, at the moment, really, you have to put what the suttas say in practice <laughs> on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Now, if you are really like letting go 50%, then also you are happy, 50%. If you let it go 100%, also you are happy, 100%. So it's up to you. It's your choice. <laughs> so you choose. It's called you choose. The teaching of the Buddha is you choose. Now, there's myths about Nibbana, about this third noble truth, which is actually another way of saying the third noble truth is Nibbana, because that's the re realization of uh, Nibbana, which is the goal of all Buddhists and all meditators probably. But uh, uh, it's very, very important to understand the myth around this. It was a preoccupation even before the Buddha came in Indian thought. What's the nature of Nibbana? Up to now, there's a lot of speculation. What's really Nibbana? I can share with you three speculations I've had people talking about and uh, myths. People say Nibbana is impermanent because everything is impermanent. But that's a myth. Actually, Nibbana is permanently permanent. <laughs> so you can enjoy the bliss. <laughs> There. Another myth is nobody can attain Nibbana in this very lifetime. In many ways, uh, when I was in Sri Lanka, most people say, you know, for us, no, let us wait for another Buddha to come. It's called Metaya, Metaya Buddha, Metta Buddha, <laughs> who is a future Buddha actually. It's called Metta Buddha. They say when he comes, they will start meditating and. So <laughs> But why don't you do it now? <laughs> it's better you do it now. So when the Metta Buddha comes, they're all set. <laughs> Not all of them, but I've seen, I've had some people there in Sri Lanka saying that it's impossible to attain Nibbana. Actually, the Buddha said that wherever there is a Noble Eightfold Path, and people practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, there's going to be always people who are enlightened. Don't ask me where they are. You find out. <laughs> Do the homework. <laughs> so this is a myth going on. That, oh, no. Enlightened being, they used to be, to be during the time of the Buddha. Now, no, people are so much engrossed in material stuff and all these things. iPod, MP3 generation. Forget about enlightenment. No way. It's possible. The third myth. Samsara and Nibbana is the same. It's one and the same thing. No, that's not true, actually. <laughs> the Buddha clearly mentioned that there are, two, uh, there are two ways. One leads to Nibbana, another one leads to suffering. Nibbana is suffering, so they can't be the same. So anyway, there are more myths, but at least uh, let us uh, stop there. Now, there is a big task I have here in front of me. It's to explain you what's Nibbana. <laughs> but I'll do my best. I can relate to this experience when I was a, a yogi and I tried to explain people what I experienced on a retreat. Uh, one time I met a, a yogi in California. I mean, uh, somebody from in California, and asked me, what are you doing? I say, 
I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing meditation. He said, medication? I said, no, I'm practicing meditation. He kept on saying medication at the third time I just gave up. Could not understand what I'm talking about. He had no idea what meditation is. So trying to explain people what meditation is not easy. Leave alone explaining Nibbana. Maybe in America, actually, it's easier to explain, explain people what meditation is. I see somebody shaking their heart. Yes, you're right. Actually, one time I was refused a visa to come to the United States because I mentioned that. I was in Brazil and I applied to, to, for a visa to come and meditate. When I submitted the paper, you know, I was in front of uh, all business people come to America. Me, I was a simple yogi, shaved head. So the immigration asked me, what are you going to do in America? I'm going to meditate. He said, what? You can do it here. <laughs> so I was under the impression <laughs> that everybody in America understands meditation. Actually, I thought like that. That was back in 1998 when I, actually, yes, 1999, I was in Brazil. And uh, I asked the visa from there, the immigration officer said, well, I think she knew um, nothing about meditation. She said that um, you can do it here in Brazil. Don't, you don't have to go to USA. So it's not so easy, actually, to explain <laughs> meditation to people. Okay, now, if you, let's say you are leaving the center, and uh, maybe you go back, part one, you, somebody asks you what you've been doing, and then you start explaining, oh, you know, uh, we've been uh, meditating and walking and sitting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you walk one step and off, watch your feet touching the ground, and then... Uh, you walk slowly and you, don't, and you tell them, okay, we don't look at the yogis, our fellow yogis. We just focus our attention on the just walking path. They'll think that there's something wrong with you, actually. <laughs> what kind of food do you eat? Then you say vegetarian. What? <laughs> vegetarian? Most actually people in Uganda, at least, the uh, vegetarian is not there many things, actually. <laughs> so depends, of course, where you explain these things, your experience. And then you explain them, we've been watching the breath. Uh, they say, well, you go back to your country and say, what have you been doing? We're going to they will tell you I've been on a vacation in Thailand. And, and then you explain them, oh, my vacation was at IMS. So what did you do? Oh, I've been watching the breath. <laughs> they won't understand. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> Why did you go to USA to watch the breath? <laughs> you stay in Munich or Switzerland, uh, Uganda. So, and then you, uh, they will ask you, uh, what about uh, the Dharma talks? Oh, they talk about there's no self. So what? <laughs> Who was listening to the Dharma talks then? <laughs> so you can see where we are going. And even they will ask you, how much did you pay for that? I say, couple of, <laughs> couple of <laughs> was there TV or newspaper? There was nothing, no even ice cream. So it's not easy. Just compare about that, how it's not easy to, come, uh, to explain these things. So let us be serious now about Nibbana. Let us turn up to, to Nibbana. I'll try my best. If you catch up something, if you get something, fine and good. If not, please wait and go there and tell us. Nibbana. <laughs> the, the, according to the mission statement, Nibbana has to be realized. You don't play around with it. <laughs> you have to realize Nibbana. That's a task. That's your task is to realize this Nibbana actually come from a, a Indian thought. Before the Buddha came, actually, the, the word was used there. And up to now, it's still used. The word Nibuto means to cool, to cool off. So it's like cooling off your porridge. If you are taking porridge and it's hot, you have to cool it, cool off. So what we are doing here is to cool off our mental defilements, especially attachment. I was in Australia, I, I, there was a street, a street called Nibbana, actually. It's a very common word, actually. I was so surprised 
there's a street called Nibana in Melbourne. In USA, when I go around uh, with people, they always give me a treat. They say, Bant, what are you going to drink? So when I went there in the vendor machine, I found out Nibana drink. And I said, I want that one. <laughs> because maybe it quenches thirst. Because tanha, the word tanha, which is translated as craving, literally it means thirst. So these people in the United States, they are very good. They found out how they can really use this word and, and they put it on a soft, uh, soft drink. It tastes good actually. It, uh, it quenches the thirst too. <laughs> Grammatical, the grammar part of Nibbana. So Vana there, Nivarana in Sanskrit, in Pali is Nibbana. Vana there means craving and Nir which means no craving. So if you, are, you want to attain Nibbana, do not crave. Very simple. <laughs> Very simple. How you are going to do it, <laughs> whether it's in the beats or in the big chunk, I don't know. We, all, we, we are all doing it, <laughs> in, not in one go, but slowly but slowly, slowly but slowly. Nibbana also, the, it means to blow out, like the flame of fire. You blow out. The, your greed. If you blow it out, then at least you're on the path. A few definitions about Nibbana that maybe will help you to uh, understand what it is. Psychologically, it's the attainment of uh, ultimate happiness. That's on a psychological level. It's the attainment of ultimate happiness. Ethically, that's... Uh, um, really, it's the overcoming of greed, hatred, and delusion from ethical point of view. Metaphysically, Nibbana means the end of the will of birth and death. Metaphysically. But also, Buddha talked about the Buddha, this uh, metaphorically uh, as an island, as a cave, as a shelter as far shore and also as a refuge. So that's give you some idea what Nibbana is. And the Buddha used many times terms like uh, the truth, supreme truth, to show you its uniqueness. It talked about its subtle, its subtle unique, and also subtle, unique, profound, wonderful, marvelous. Sometimes Buddha talked about Nibbana's peace, bliss, purity, freedom, happiness. All these are pointing towards what Nibbana is. Sometimes he used terms like negation of uh, the conditioned phenomena, such as uh, terms such as unconditioned, uncreated, the unborn, the deathless. So all these are terms uh, of Nibbana. Even in, uh, he used terms like negating suffering, suffering like he talked about fearlessness, soreness, unafflicted. So there are many terms actually uh, to explain Nibbana. Now, let us see how we can experience Nibbana in three ways. <coughs> Starting with probably the easiest one. The easiest one to experience, not final Nibbana, but really is moment to moment release. I would call it release. Freedom. Moment to moment happiness. Touching those moments of happiness. The Pali word is called Tadanga. Nibbana. Tadanga, T-A-D-A-N-G-A. Tadanga means moment to moment. So we can experience this from moment to moment when we are letting go. We are not holding on things. I think you have experienced it also, moment to moment. This finds support in a sutta in Sanyuta Nikaya. It's called Kanda Sanyuta. Kanda means the five aggregates. It's, it's called Kanda Sanyuta. Here I'm going to really read directly from the sutta so that you really can know that this is the word of the Buddha saying that it's possible. It's possible to experience it uh, from moment to moment when we let go. 
quotes. Having seen Bikus, the impermanence, changeability, absence of lust, and seizing of the five aggregates, that five aggregate was form formerly as it is now. Thus, seeing with right understanding, you must have right understanding. Thus, seeing with right understanding as it actually is, that all the five aggregates of clinging are impermanent and pleasurable of nature of change, then whatever is arising of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, this are eliminated. These are eliminated. These being eliminated, there is no anxiety. Not having anxiety, one dwells at ease. Dwelling at ease, this bhikkhu is called extinguished to that extent. Extinguished to that extent, in quotes, this is what they, uh, they call, uh, in, even the commentary talks about Tadanga uh, Nibuto. Tadanga Nibuto. I told you Nibuto is a word used to cooling off. So this we find source, this like we can find sources actually from the Buddha himself how you can actually experience those moments of release, those moments of re release. There is a, a monk who passed away is called Ajahn Buddha Dasa. He was in Thailand. He said that if we don't experience those those moments, we, we will go crazy because really there's a lot of suffering in in the world. <laughs> I mean, those are, I think those moments of release and moments of happiness really keeps us going. Knowing that there's a possibility of final release, it gives you some kind of a test what's going to happen when you completely let go of the mental defilements. So this is from moment to moment, and maybe you have experienced those moments in, during meditation. Another way you can experience Nibbana is a little bit uh, advanced, though. You need to go. <laughs> That's where things are going to become a little <laughs> bit difficult, but let us go. <laughs> so this one, you have to overcome what we call fetters. Fetters, the Pali word is called Samyojana. Samyojana. So there, uh, it means like binding. Samyojana is those defilements that binds binds us to samsara, the will of birth and death. They really make us stick. That's why samyojana means you stick. You stick to the uh, to the uh, round of death, birth and death. So this one, you have to abandon this. In, pro, in like a, in a step by step in order to attain Nibbana. Like somebody can attain Nibbana actually when he's still alive. And there are four stages one has to do that. And I'm going to explain them. To be able to explain them, I think it's better I tell you uh, how I can re relate to this attaining attainment of Nibbana and also the practice we are doing here. When we are doing the practice here, Vipassana meditation, we have to get the object. Yeah? Object of, let's say, the breath. That's a conditioned object. But in Nibbana, it's the opposite. It's unconditioned. So I think that much is enough to, to explain to you. Because every time you meditate in Vipassana meditation, you take object of the, less of the breath, uh, emotion, whatever it is, and focus on it. There, it's unconditioned. Here, as you're practicing, it's a conditioned object. Because the breath is conditioned by the nose and air. Uh, in order to observe the breath, it's, uh, the, there's a lot of condition. You must have lungs. <laughs> so everything is conditioned. But there, 
It's not conditional. So then the second distinction I can see in our daily practice and what goes uh, when uh, you, you are what goes on when you are attaining nibbana is that you have to overcome five hindrances. Five hindrances in our meditation. That's what we do. So in nibbana also. When you enter Nibbana, you have to overcome the five, the ten fetters. Some of them are similar, actually, to the five hindrances, and I'll tell you in, in a bit. So this is very important to abandon the ten fetters. And then the third thing, when we practice vipassana meditation to, uh, uh, to attain insight knowledge, the the we uh, we see the like impermanence and satisfactoriness and non-self. So there must be the arising of insights inside knowledge. So if you can relate to, to, to this uh, direct experience, it's the same with Nibbana. There should be the arising of what you call path consciousness and fruit consciousness. I hope we're together. So now, if somebody asks you to define Nibbana, this is how I would do. Nibbana is the taking of the unconditioned object. Unconditioned object. The overcoming, the abandoning of ten fetters, and the arising of path consciousness and fruit consciousness. Period. I don't go beyond that, <laughs> because really we are trying to use words <laughs> to to define something which is really unconditioned. So it's so difficult. But if you really use those three things, I think nothing can go wrong. Can I repeat? First. The taking of the unconditioned as the object of Nibbana, the unconditioned. The abandoning of tenifetas and the arising of path and fruit consciousness. Thus, if you want the definition of Nibbana. Let's continue. Okay. Fetas. Samyojana. Yojana means to yoke, to bind. Some is more of a amplifying that process. Really, it's, uh, you can get the picture of something that really ties us to the, to the samsara. And we cannot gain enlightenment. <laughs> but uh, the good news is that actually we can release ourselves slowly by slowly. I want you to think of, uh, or imagine uh, these fetters, ten fetters, as a rope with ten strings, eh? ten strings. And with your practice, if you keep on chipping off or cutting off, it loosens. You cut off, it loosens. Completely, if you completely cut off, you are free. So that's the picture I want to give you about uh, these fetters. The relationship between fetters and uh, hindrance, I would like you to imagine a tree. A tree, it has a stem and it has leaves. So what you are experiencing in meditation here is hindrances. But actually all those hindrances are coming from a deep, pre a deep, deep place where you can't see. And those are the fetters. Ten fetters are just deep there, covered by soil. And they are the ones who are always nourishing the five hindrances. One time I went to my teacher, Sado Slananda, I told him that, you know, I want to get rid of restlessness. He just laughed. <laughs> because I didn't know about fetters. You can't get, get rid of restlessness. <laughs> now, in, <laughs> you have to get rid of restlessness when you attain the fourth level of enlightenment. So me, as naive as I am, I say, I want to get rid of this restlessness. It's bothering me. <laughs> is, is that familiar to you? <laughs> when you come to the interview and you say you want to get rid of restlessness, my friend, you have to take it easy. <laughs> it's a big thing, actually. It's not as easy. We can give you some tips to really kind of uh, massage it and... Suppress it a little bit, but still it's going to pop up until you attain fourth level of enlightenment. We are going to go through fet one fetter one by one, by one and you really see how deep it is. But remember the trip analogies, like deep, deep, they are deep-seated. 
deep seated there let us start the first one it's called sakaya diti this is actually fitter about the belief in a permanent self and or a soul that it's permanent in one way it's a belief that okay somebody who made you angry in august before you came here you are going to meet the same person does believe definitely a permanent self people change they made you angry in august you came here do you think their form is the same their feeling is the same their mental formation is the same their conscious no it has changed yourself you have changed since you arrived here you know the same with your body cells new ones have come and old one has passed away feelings have changed perception has changed mental formation has have changed your awareness has changed but why are you still thinking about that person who made you angry in august is your attachment it's the attachment that's why you keep on hugging on to the memory i'm not saying there's nobody hurt, hurt you or wounded you no of course that happened but now it's memory you are just uh, like uh, ruminating gagitating and uh, remembering and, and then you bring it and it becomes so alive alive and you see even this person in front of you that's a belief that there's a permanent self actually on an, on that level actually we experience it but this actually was already before the buddha came most people live believed in a soul that there's something inside us that you can never like a change you know you can you can uh, like blow somebody with a bomb and in two pieces but there's something that is will never be distracted it will never be destroyed and what will do it will do that small thing which is called soul is going to pass either through the nose or somewhere and it will get another life and it will keep on doing that for many many years and eons and uh, until all species it goes through all the different different existence uh, like being born as a lizard and it is until it completes completes its, its circle and then you are going to be rebirthed so most people have this belief actually so the buddha said no there's nothing permanently inside there abiding in you so if you really let go that fetter that's the first fetter then you can attain what we call path consciousness path consciousness uh, this is called actually sotapanna sotapanna is the first level of enlightenment uh, sota means the noble eightfold path sota the word sota there means the noble eightfold path sota also means actually ear in pali language ear so that's why the people who attain sotapanna they are called uh listeners people have listened to the dharma if you don't listen to the dharma you are not going to attain enlightenment so sotapanna is <laughs> means that people are here savakas they are called savaka also people have heard those of who are hearing so li- sorry re- listening actually so you can see sotapanna actually sota means the noble eightfold path when you practice the noble eightfold path you go into what we call a stream Uh, the, 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 the english word is called stream entera because the stream which is the noble eightfold path it leads onwards it leads to the final goal which is nibbana so once you enter the the, the stream the currents will take you you'll never go back so that's kind of a guarantee when you attain the first level of enlightenment you have maximum seven uh times to be reborn <laughs> and then within those seven times you attain final nibbana so now whether western ears knows about about these things i don't know i'm just pr- 
throwing things there. <laughs> so it's up to you. <laughs> if you find it's difficult to digest that you'll be reborn seven times before you attain final enlightenment. So it's up to you. But actually, you can. You don't have to go through all the seven. You can do the job and finish it in one, <laughs> one, one go. <laughs> but it, it requires a lot of work. But the good thing, we know where the work is. We know where the work is. It's about letting go. Letting go and letting go. That's where the work is. is. It's hard, but it's doable. Many people have done it before you. There is a belief that this self is permanent, is eternal, is never changing, and is unconditioned. If that's what they believe you're still having, then this is what you call Sakaya Diti. But if you know, or you have experienced that things are changing all the time, and they are conditioned and impermanent, then you are going to actually have less belief in this permanent self. And then you are going to, I think, get close. <laughs> Getting close in the vicinity. So actually, there are 20 views about this self stuff. So there's identifying the five aggregates with the self. Okay, you know, the self is identical to the five aggregates. They're also thinking that the self possesses the five aggregates. And also thinking that there's a, the, form, the five aggregates are within that self. And also the opposite, that okay, the, the self are within five aggregates. So if you multiply four by five, you get 20 ways of really thinking about a permanent self. But this is, I think, doable. You don't have to believe that <laughs> there is always a self that was in the past and the future. and So there is really, in your experience, you can see yourself in a breath. Every breath shows you that there is no self. So in a way, it's not so difficult, actually, I think, to overcome these fetters. Anyway, that's my view. <laughs> but let's go to doubt. That's the second fetter. The second fetter is called skeptical doubt. This is more of actually doubt uh, the doubt about the self. Uh, I give you some example in scriptures, given scriptures. Did I exist before? Will I be reborn? Do I exist? Do I not exist? Who am I? Uh, I am, uh, am I perceiving the self by means of a self? Or am I perceiving the, the non-self by the means of self? All these things, <laughs> we get caught up in these uh, questions and then they open up to skeptical doubt, skepticism, skepticism. The practice is to watch it. Watch when those thoughts come. Be mindful when those questions come up. Know when they are present and know when they also they are absent. Come to a present object, let's say the, the body, redirect your mind to the body. Really, when you do that, you don't have all these questions. These are questions are about speculation about the future and the past. And these speculations uh, were there during the Buddha, actually, Buddha's time, 6th century in India. Many people speculated like this about the self, about Nibbana, about... Uh, the world, the universe, whether it's, it's finite or non-finite. So these are speculative questions. I don't think you have these questions, do you? So I think this fetus is also to break. If you have them, you know how to deal with those questions. Just come back to the present moment. So the second fetus is skeptical doubt. That one, you can also work with it. The third fetus is called... Uh, attachment to rights and rituals. Attachment to rights and rituals or religious observances and customs. Sila Bata Paramasa. Paramasa. So, actually, this is uh, 
a practice that prevailed in India where people used to walk like a cow. Many years ago, I don't know now, but this is a, a belief that if you walk like a cow, you'll be, you'll be liberated. You'll attain final bliss. Muksha, liberation. One time somebody came and asked the Buddha, what will be my destination? You know I'm practicing these ascetic practices of walking like a cow or uh, living like a dog. The Buddha said, this your practice? Yes, I was told that if you live like a cow, you, you, <laughs> you live like a dog, you'll be reborn in a very, very happy existence. The Buddha said, well, if you, walk, you live like a cow, you'll be reborn as a cow. Very simple. <laughs> if you, <laughs> you lead your life like a dog, you'll be reborn as a dog. That's what you're practicing. So the Buddha actually pushed away these practices that actually had nothing to do with final liberation. They may be helping that moment. Th those practices might help some, something, uh, maybe overcome this and that, but not for final liberation. But also you know that the Buddha was radical. What he meant by liber liberation was total liberation. It's not just halfway. <laughs> so most people were practicing these practices, I think, to overcome things for the present moment. I mean, these practices have their value, actually. Uh, we, are, we cannot downplay this va the value of these practices. But the Buddha had a, a different perspective of, of final liberation. And he saw that these practices have nothing to do with what he defined as liberation, Nibbana. Just wait a minute. In Buddhism, we have some practices <laughs> that also actually might look like have nothing to do with final liberation. And most people can get caught up in, the, they can really get caught up in these practices. Some of them are actually, uh, as you know, Buddhism is open. Uh, there's many things, people, things, uh, many people they practice. Uh, and when Buddhism comes, people tend to integrate their beliefs into Buddhism. They smuggle their beliefs into Buddhism. So you find out some of the, those who have been to Asia, some of the practices may look actually have nothing to do with the Buddha's teaching, but what I believe though, we have minimum rites and rituals that actually help us to, uh, to actually gain faith and confidence and respect and gratitude, and then that can serve as a basis and support for proceeding on a path to liberation. One of them you see oh, doing like this. We bow down a little bit. Some people say, no, that has nothing to do with the final liberation. Yes, yes, it has to do with it. Out of respect, faith and, conf um, uh, faith and uh, confidence in the practice. Uh, so these things are, uh, can arouse joy and joy is a, is a foundation for, um, I mean, can arouse gladness, which is a foundation for happiness and all this beautiful mental state. So we have minimum rituals, but they shouldn't be mistaken for this, this feta. Sebant is talking about feta, the third feta, but I see him doing like this every morning. No, this is different. Because this is a common also misunderstanding. People say, oh, the feta of rites and rituals, I should throw out. Everything. It's a, in other words, throwing the baby with water. <laughs> so we shouldn't actually throw everything. Uh, we should know which minimum practices we are doing uh, to serve as a foundation for going forward to liberation. Now the th fourth fetter is sensuous, uh, this is craving actually, that's the fourth feta. Uh, this is like kama raga. Kama means senses and raga means to glue. We are glued. <laughs> I think you get a picture, you know. Do you use super guru here? In Uganda we have super glue. We use it and then it really gets sticky, you know. <laughs> so the same thing, we really get sticky and we stuck onto the 
desires uh, for these sense pleasures and that's the fetter it keeps on nourishing all the hindrances that we we actually face yeah if it's coupled with ignorance so you have experienced this i think in your <laughs> your practice it's a deep root as a fetter But I think before I go to this, I would like to remind you, if you cut off the first three that I've explained you, um, that means belief in permanent self, skeptical doubt, attachment to rules and rights, you attain Sotapanna, the first level of enlightenment. The qualities of a Sotapanna is, is unshakable, unshakable faith in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha and fact, a perfect morality that means you keep the five precept intact if you are keeping the five precept without breaking them and also you have faith and confidence in the buddha dhamma and sangha those are the four qualities of a sotapanna somebody who is called a stream entra so now somebody asked me who is a enlightened being uh, there you can remember this this enlightened being who are who has overcome the, these first three fetters, and also he has, or she has, or one has these qualities. When one has these qualities, uh, then we can say it's enlightened, uh, the first level of enlightenment. So we got the second level of enlightenment. Uh, it's called Sakadagami, which is once returner. Once returner, what they do, they don't really cut off all the fetters, uh, I mean this, the two fetters that I'm going to explain to you. They attenuated them. They really just reduced their impact. So one of them is, of course, craving for sense pleasures. Another one is ill will. That means second level of enlightenment, they will have some ill will. Their will will be ill, but just very little, not too much like us. <laughs> and also they will have some craving but not again too much like us they will have some craving so they just attenuate it so they are subject to birth only once in human realm, realm before attaining a, a full enlightenment that's why they are called once returner because they have to come once in the human realm uh, existence so now you, you know who is a, a once returner the second level of enlightenment now the third level of enlightenment is called anagami, non-returner. This one doesn't return at all to this human uh, existence here in this sense realm because he has over one has overcome ill will and overcome craving, so they have reserved seats in a plane of existence which is called pure abodes. Now, this is a place where actually people want to go, but I don't know whether you want to go there because you really have to overcome all <laughs> craving for ice cream, craving for this and that. So still there will be some craving as we are going to see, but that's about subtle craving. So well, if that's where you want to go, those who want to get enlightened, so that's a fetter you have to overcome. You have to eliminate all the five fetters I've already told you, all of them completely. That's craving and ill will, and the other three I've told you already. Now, many people want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Are you familiar with that? Everybody says, I want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> now, everybody wants to get enlightened, <laughs> but nobody wants to let go of this uh, fetter, especially craving. It's so enticing. It's good, no? <laughs> it's good. That's prop it propels 
our circle of existence. Even the Buddha said that uh, if there was no craving, then people will not be attached to it. Yeah, they will not really get hooked. <laughs> but because it actually brings some kind of gratification, that's why people get hooked. But the Buddha went a little bit further. He said, no, it doesn't have to be that way. Let us look at the other angle of the sense desires, uh, craving. So it, it has danger also that it's changing all the time. And also it's uh, unsatisfactory and also it has, a, it's has a no self. So, so this is very important to know what you have to let go completely in order to reach the third level of enlightenment. Now the last one. The last one is called craving for final material existence and uh, craving for immaterial existence, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. This one you have to let go at once, all those five together. <laughs> and the, according to uh, my teacher, he said that this is uh, actually a little bit easier because <laughs> you have overcome the gross part. This is really so easy. You have done all the work. Now you are ready to go to reach this final level of enlightenment. It's called Arahant. It, literally, it means worth one, one who is fully enlightened. Craving for finding material existence, I think that's not our problem. This is about like meditate. People use the jhanas and meditate and they want to be reborn in this state of where they have a form. They practice actually form. They use what you call material jhanas. And then uh, first, of course, uh, as you know, people, they crave for this form itself, this one, the, the body itself. But that's already uh, taken care of uh, before. Uh, one attain arahant, but people also crave to exist in this. Uh, there are thirty-one one ways. I mean, thirty-one um, states of existence. Thirty-one states of existence. I'm not going to explain them now, but you know that there's some some uh, existence which is there are sixteen of them. Or they are they are they are named according first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. If somebody wants to live in any of those existence, thus they have craving in uh, for final material existence. I don't think that's our problem here. <laughs> so I think uh, we have, let's move on. Another one craving for immaterial existence is those people who want to have only mind only, only the mind to exist and not any other thing. So that's immaterial jhanas. That means the fifth and up to the eighth jhana. So this is called immaterial jhanas. So they correspond to uh, some uh, levels of, ex of existence, as, as I told you, 31 levels of existence. So they have a correspondence there where people wish that when they are reborn, they are just in, have the mind only. Very difficult to explain, but just know that's what it is. So now number eight is conceit mana. That's a Pali word, mana. Uh, mana, uh, people say it's pride and arrogance and uh, comparing, but for me, this doesn't speak to me. All those words don't speak to me. Mana means to measure. You, we measure equal, eh? equal measuring, you know, like having this measure, something that measure weights and all these things. You put it here, say equal. You put one more here, they say, oh, it's more. You put here and then like this. So just keep like <laughs> like this. So we do this all the time. We measure yogis. Oh, that must be a good yogi. You see how they are meditating. They are calm and peaceful. Me, I'm having a hard time. Maybe that yogi is enlightened. <laughs> so we stop measuring. Oh, this, look at this yogi is walking slowly. Eh? Very slow. So we keep on measuring. Oh, me, I've lost it. So... <laughs> it's going on all the time and we 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 have this kind of self judgment judging others all the time and it is a book that some they have written the how of happiness they say that another cause for unhappiness is actually comparing yourself with others we compare all the time here are the some tips if you want to overcome this 
whenever a judgment thought arises, just say blue sky. It's a mantra I give you, blue sky. <laughs> then that will help a little bit. But anytime you, somebody, you see somebody doing something, just blue sky. Because if you look at the blue sky, there's nothing. Blue sky, there's nothing. If, we, if there's, you are judging somebody and comparing, there's something you're comparing. But if there's a blue sky, I looked at blue sky, you don't see anything, basically, there. That's a mantra I use. Another thing is reflection on law of karma. Law of karma, then you know that this is my karma, has nothing to do with their karma, you know. If they are chopping vegetable very fast, don't need, no need to judge them. Yeah? So, some people chop vegetables faster than others. You know, so, any judgment comes, just remember, oh, this is my karma, and that's their karma. That helps. Another one is actually think about things that you have not done. Think about things that you have left undone. In other words, don't be a fault finder. Find out things that you are yet to do. <laughs> right? So I think this is very, very important because most of the time we judge others as if we are perfect. But look at the things that also you haven't done. You know? So we see also some of the things that we need to do. Finally, always I remind myself that I should mind my business, right? This is always I tell myself, mind your business, mind your business. And then you leave up other people also to mind their business. So I think this is very helpful apart from the mindfulness practice of just watching judgment and comparing mind and measuring mind. That helps also. Restlessness. That's actually, this restlessness is not the same as, uh, it's a feta. Uh, but it's not the same as uh, the hindrance. Uh, it has the same name, but here is different. Here, somebody who is about to attain uh, this final level of enlightenment, they, they, they can't wait to attain the, first, the final level. Say, wow, I've, yeah. when am I going to get enlightened fully? <laughs> so they can't wait. So that restlessness, okay, I want to really get rid of the whole thing and all this suffering and, and then really attain the final level of enlightenment. So there's some kind of restlessness, very subtle. And ignorance, of course, that's also another factor. Uh, you know what ignorance is, ignoring the vulnerable truth. So once somebody attained the final level of enlightenment, uh, it's called arahanship, they have done what is to be done. <laughs> no more to do. <laughs> And good luck. <laughs> the Buddha said it's possible. I'm going to just read to you what the Buddha said, actually. <clears throat> and, and that will be the end. Of course, I want to remind you the way how the fate arises. Actually, it arises you know, when you, like, uh, for instance, the eye and the eye and the visible object, there's a, the meeting of the two, then there's contact, I mean the, what we call eye consciousness, and then there's contact, there's, after that there's feelings, and after that there's craving, and clinging, and becoming. So actually it has a process, it's a conditioned process. It's not that you're doomed to have these fetters, no. It actually comes due to the six senses, contact the ob their, their respective objects. Right, six sense organs. So you know how they come. You know how to deal with them. Note them when they're absent. Note them when they're present. Be mindful of the feta when it's present, when it's absent. The condition for its arising, the condition for its removal, and how it doesn't arise in the future. I've told you how the feta doesn't arise in the future by attaining, attaining these levels of enlightenment. I've already mentioned that. So you know how to go about fetters now. Focus on more removing this stuff, actually, slowly but slowly. But slowly, slowly, you, I think you can overcome them. Even the first one is actually worth an attainment. If you attain the first level of enlightenment, the Buddha says it's, like, it's better than being the president of the entire world. <laughs> Imagine you're the president of USA, German, Switzerland, and all these things. You know. Uganda, 
very wonderful actually if you <laughs> This one is more than that. So don't underestimate this attainment, actually. As we are running out of time, I want to tell you one thing here. I think uh, to tell you that the Buddha gave a loyal seal of approval. He gave a no money back guarantee in what you are doing here. I'm going to read directly from the Sutta. This is in the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha say like this. Because... If anyone should properly develop the fourth foundation of mindfulness, I'm going to summarize. Maximum, seven years. Minimum, seven days. One of the two fruits would be expected for that person. Either final knowledge here and now, which is arahant. And if there's any trace of clinging left, the state of non-returner. That means the Buddha gave a guarantee either you become a fourth, you, become, you attain the fourth level of enlightenment or the third. He didn't mention about the first and second. That gives you some idea that it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. He <laughs> said so just follow the, fo the, 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 the fourth foundation of mindfulness. I might look optimistic, but I'm telling you, in one level it's difficult, it seems, but who am I to say? On one level it's easy, but who am I to say? Find out to yourself and let me know. <laughs> let us sit for a moment or two. Thank you very much. May all beings attain final liberation. May your practice be a cause and condition for attaining these stages of enlightenment in this very lifetime. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>